can be here Wednesday night. We'll talk about it and share a little bit about it. I'll give you a bit of a report about what went on and what took place and uh, what some of the discussion was that was there. But it was all in all a very, very good convention this year, but very small, only about 5,000 messengers this year. I'm sure Phoenix, Arizona had something to do with that. So anyway, we'll talk about it. We did visit First Southern Baptist Church of Scottsdale. Uh, found out that my friend Russell Moore was going to be preaching there, and so uh, I put it in the map, got the address, and I called. Uh, we called Uber on Sunday morning, Tim and I, and we Ubered to First Baptist Church of Scottsdale, only to find out that First Baptist Church of Scottsdale is not First Southern Baptist Church of Scottsdale. And uh, we got in, we were greeted royally when we got there, and uh, they said, they've got a coffee shop out here, we got a little while before the next service starts, and I said, well, is Russ Moore not preaching here this morning? And she looked at me, the greeter looked at me like, who is Russ Moore? And I said, okay, I think we're at the wrong place, is this not First Southern Baptist? And she said, oh no, this is First Baptist, we're the oldest Baptist church in, in Arizona, or something like that. And I said, oh, okay, well, we're at the wrong place. And uh, Uber had already left, and so I was sitting there thinking about, okay, how are we going to get another Uber here quickly to get over there? And one of the greeters, one of the greeters came up to me and said, or to Tim and I, and said, listen, uh, I'm sorry you came to the wrong place. Let me go get my car, and I will take you over to uh, First Southern Baptist. And uh, uh, we kind of mused a little bit, wonder if one of our greeters would do that, if some of our, someone came here by accident looking to be somewhere else, and I like to think that they would. And, and show them the way. It was, it was a good time. We did get there, and uh, we walked in, got there a little early. I went down and spoke to Russ, and, and we sat on the third row from the front, not third row from the back. Yes, Tim did go down to the third row from the front. And we sat down there, and uh, I learned something. Uh, one of the, I got up to go speak to someone, and another friend of mine that was there, and, and a lady came in and stopped about five rows back, and I could see her talking to some couples, a couple there, and I could see her pointing to where we were sitting. Tim didn't notice that, uh, but I, I could tell she was saying, they're in my seat. <laughs> they're sitting in my seat. Well, by the time I got back over there, she had acquiesced and had sat down with the couple that she was talking to, and I was glad of that, but I, I told Tim about it. I said, I think we're in somebody's seat here uh, that we took. You know, I'm so glad at Grace Baptist Church we don't have seats. You know, that you, you, if, if a visitor comes in and sits down, you're not going to try to move them out of your seat, that you're going to sit somewhere else and graciously let them sit. I'm just thankful for that. I want you to know that. Okay, enough about that. Take your Bibles. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. This by far, the passage we're going to begin this morning, we're not going to finish it, uh, but this passage we're going to begin talking about is arguably one of the most difficult passages to hear in the whole book of Romans. Maybe perhaps even in the whole Bible, especially in the New Testament. Because in this passage, Paul is going to talk about wrath. He's going to talk about sin, the wrath of God, and he's going to talk about man's sin. And, and there's no doubt that we really don't like to hear about sin. We don't like to hear about the wrath of God. We don't like to think about God being a God of wrath. We've, we've been brought up in such a culture, religiously, in our day, where all anybody wants to talk about is just the love of God. And listen, I want you to understand, God is the God of love. He is a God of love. Love is one of his attributes, but it's not his only attribute. And Paul is going to show us very carefully in this passage uh, what man's condition is, specifically in this passage, 
what Gentile man's and woman's condition is, which is what most, you, most of us in this room fall under the day, under today. But I want you to notice one thing very clearly. The first word in verse 18 is for. And that word for is tying what he's about to say back to the previous verses. Paul has said very clearly in 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and and also to the Greek or the Gentile. For in it, for in the gospel of Jesus Christ, for in it, the righteousness of God that is from God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And, and so Paul says in verse 18, for, tying it back to that. Paul believes, just like John 3.16 teaches, that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have everlasting life. He believes and he knows the good news. He knows the gospel. And we need to know that gospel. But my friend, you will never appreciate, you will never be thrilled in, you will never glory in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You'll never glory in the good news of Jesus Christ if you don't first and foremost understand the bad news that precedes it. As Paul says, while I am glorying in the gospel, rejoicing in the gospel, it's so good, it's so sweet because of the condition of all mankind. And that's where he picks up in verse 18. And he says here, he says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, and birds, and animals, and creeping things. Boy, there's a lot in that passage, and much more than we can get to today. But I want you to recognize that Paul is saying, this is where natural man exists. They are under the wrath of God. The wrath of God is being revealed, and we'll talk more about it next week as we look at the idolatry and look at what it means that that he has made himself known to them. We won't even get to that. We won't get past verse 18 today. But, But I want you to understand that Paul is so clearly saying here, this is why the gospel is so important. This is why we need to understand that. As a matter of fact, in this whole passage from from 118 all the way to 320, Paul is going to break down every segment of of mankind and show why they need the gospel he's going to point to the gospel over and over again in the passage that that goes down through the 32nd verse of this first chapter paul is going to talk about the the depraved gentile society in its idolatry in its immorality and it's in its antisocial behavior and he's going to clearly lay that out then starting with chapter 2 verses 1 through 16 
He's going to talk about what you might call the moralizers, those who are caught up in a moralism, who, who simply say, well, I'm really trying to be better. I'm really trying to do good. But what really happens is they profess high ethical standards, but they apply them to everybody except themselves. Those are the legalists. Those are the ones who say, here are the standards that are so important, but they don't live by them, but they try to get other people to it, and they point other, to, other people to it. And Paul's going to say they are just as much in need of the gospel in their morality as, as those who are in their idolatry. Thirdly, he's going to turn in chapter 2, verse 17 through 3, 8, he's going to talk about the self-confident Jews who boast of their knowledge of God's law, who talk about how God's law is so important, God's law is so pure, God's law is so right, and yet they don't obey it. Again, recognizing that the law, Paul will tell us, is not given so that we can be made right with God, but the law is given to show us how we need Christ and need the gospel that he's going to clearly outline and pour out here before us. And then finally, in verses, chapter 3, verse 9 through 20, he's going to just encompass the whole human race. And he's going to conclude, as he does it, it, at this passage here, that all are guilty and all are without excuse before God. And we stand there, whether we, we think of ourselves as moral, whether we think of ourselves as, as good people, or whether we think of ourselves as somebody who is trying to do better and be better and improve ourselves, he's going to say, listen, that will never get it. That will never, ever get it. Because you see... We are helpless and we are hopeless apart from the power of the gospel. The, the power that, that Paul says is the, the power of God that reveals the righteousness of God and, and the righteousness that is from God. Apart from that righteousness, apart from that power, we are absolutely helpless and hopeless. You see, nothing keeps a person away from Christ more than their inability to see their need for him. And Paul wants to show the whole world, he wants to show every one of us, even we who are believers, that our need rests in Christ and Christ alone. Not in religion, not in activities, not in good deeds, but our need rests in Christ and Christ alone. And then there's the other side, who some who maybe will see it, but they just refuse they're totally unwilling to admit it. They want to say, I'm self-sufficient. I have my own life. I do my own thing, and God will just have to be satisfied with it. Well, there's a real problem in that, and Paul is going to lay that problem out for us very clearly. As I say, this is not a passage that, that gives you a lot of warm fuzzies. It's not a passage that you say, oh, I'd, I'd like to hear that over and over and over again. You're going to hear it a good bit over the next few weeks, but it's a passage that we must hear. And must understand if we're going to be thrilled by the gospel. When Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, I think he's saying, I'm thrilled by the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am, I am motivated by the gospel of Jesus Christ. I, I relish in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly where we need to be. That's exactly what must come in our own life. Jesus made the statement to, in Mark's gospel, chapter 2, verse 16, when, when the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the the religious leaders were, were, were plotting against him and saying things about him and talking about him going out and eating with sinners and eating with tax gatherers and, and, and criticizing him for all that. Jesus said in Mark 2.16, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, 
But those who are sick do. I have come not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. Now, in that statement, Jesus is not saying here by that, that, that you know, the, as a doctor doesn't have to deal with the well that much because we don't ever go to the doctor unless we're sick, do we? We don't ever go till we admit that we need to go. I don't. You know, I, I, I wait to the very last minute and say, well, now I'll go see because something's bad wrong. But as long as I'm well, I don't think about a doctor. Jesus isn't saying that there are some who are righteous, and so I didn't really come to talk to them. But what he's saying is there's some who think they're righteous. There's some who think they don't need me. There's some who think they don't need the gospel. And I've come to call all men to truth, call all men to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've never been an alcoholic. Hope I never am one. But I do know that in Alcoholics Anonymous, that the very first step is being willing to say, I have a problem. The very first step is to say, I cannot overcome alcohol on my own. I need help to do that. Well, the very first step for salvation, Paul is going to show us, is to be willing to say, I can't do this on my own. I can't live the Christian life on my own because I still struggle with sin. We talked about the righteousness, that we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. But he doesn't make us righteous. He he declares us righteous on the basis of Christ's righteousness. Luther said we are are saint and sinner at the same time. You know, we, we we are righteous and yet sinner at the same time. And we have to recognize that in order to recognize our real needs. So Paul is going to lay it out to all four of those groups so that he can prove that equally all men, all women at all places are in need of the gospel. He is, if you will, going to form an indictment against human mankind. He's going to form an indictment in a courtroom and say, this is where you stand. And you stand guilty, but there is a way through the gospel, which I am not ashamed that you can come to Christ. In all of this, as we move through this this passage that goes through chapter 3, in all of this, the Apostle Paul never loses sight of the good news of Jesus Christ. Never becomes discouraged, and neither should we. We recognize our need, and if we are in Christ as true believers... Those who have, who have truly trusted in Christ alone, not in, not in works, not in deeds, but in Christ and Christ alone. So, so I kind of see Paul in this passage anticipating a little bit of pushback by those who are reading it in Rome, a very Gentile city. And, and I, I kind of hear Paul saying, and almost you could carry on a, a, a questioning of Paul when he says, you know, I, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And somebody's saying, well, why is that, Paul? Why are you not ashamed of the gospel? And Paul would say, because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. In the gospel is the power of God for all who believe. And, and they'll came and say, well, how so, Paul? How does that work out? He said, because in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. And that is God's way of justifying sinners so that he is both just and the justifier, which he will talk about later in this book. Maybe someone would say, well, Paul, why is that necessary? Paul says, because the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. But how have 
Paul, how have, how have people suppressed the truth? Paul says, because they, because what they have known about God, what has been made plain to them through the creation, through what we'll talk about next week, general revelation, since the very creation of the world, they have seen God's invisible qualities, His invisible attributes. They've been seen clearly, and yet they have not believed. Now, we'll see the difference in general and special revelation that, that, and the need for special or specific revelation in Christ and in the Word next week. But here, Paul wants them to see, listen, God has given, given mankind enough to know that there is a God out there. And yet they have slandered that and they have pushed away from that and they push back on that because of their own selfishness, their own self-centeredness, and their own sin. So Paul writes, and we're just going to look at verse 18 really, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men and women who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What is the wrath of God? But when we think about wrath, what immediately comes to our mind? It's, it's a fierce anger, isn't it? It's, it's somebody that, that just flies off the handle, and for no reason it seems like they, they just strike back. You know, you're driving down the road, and you cut somebody off, and that person just shows their wrath man they say you shouldn't have done that and maybe they give a few symbols and signs to you or whatever but they're say, they're, they're angry at you and they're blowing their horn i'd never do that but they're blowing their horn and they're saying that, you know they're showing anger is that the kind of wrath that god has no god's wrath is not reactionary god's wrath is not saying you know i i, I didn't see this coming and now you've done something and i'm going to really give it to you god's wrath is his reason clear response to sin based on his holiness based on who he is based on his character and paul says i want you to know the wrath of god is now being revealed it is being revealed now someone will say but isn't it going to be revealed one day or oh, in its fullness it will be revealed one day in the judgment there's no doubt about that but even right now paul says i want you to understand God's wrath is being revealed against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. And Paul is not repeating himself there. When he talks about those two terms, ungodliness and unrighteousness, he's talking about really two different dimensions of man's sin. The first dimension being what, uh, what we would call ungodliness is, uh, is the Greek word that literally means toward God, ignoring God, neglecting Him. It's a real secular attitude. It's an attitude that says, well, maybe God exists, but if he does exist, he doesn't matter. Maybe God doesn't exist, and I don't want to have anything to do with him. Ungodliness is that response of man toward general revelation that says, I don't know if I believe in him. I don't know if I think he's there. I, I don't know anything about him, and I don't want to have anything to do with him. And certainly anything he says about my life is not what I want to hear ungodliness is that response toward god the the word unrighteousness is a word that carries with it adikia which means against men 
So ungodliness is revealed toward God. Our, our ungodliness is saying, God, I don't want to obey you. I don't want to know you. I don't want to have anything to do with you or you to have anything to do with my life. And unrighteousness is that which we do toward one another. It's, it's much like what, you know, with the, two, the two great commandments that Jesus was asked about. He said, what is the greatest commandment? And, and Jesus said, well, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind, and your strength. Well, well that's, that's ungodliness to not follow that greatest commandment. And then Jesus said, and the, and the second to that is to love your neighbor as yourself. And, and so when we fail to love God, we're involved in ungodliness. When we fail to love our fellow man, our brothers and sisters in Christ, and the world around us, then we're showing our unrighteousness. And we're not living out of a relationship with him that manifests itself and shows itself to other people all around us. God's self-revelation is going to show us that all men are guilty of one or both, really, of these particular issues. Ungodliness and unrighteousness. We'll see that as we see it unfold in verses 19 through 23. But the point here is, I want you to see is, that God is concerned about the condition of our world. And God is concerned about your unrighteousness. Now, one of the problems we have, especially when we come to this passage, is we want to say, take the illustrations that Paul uses and extrapolate those and say, yes, those people are that way. What Paul wants us to see is, no, it's not those people are that way, but we are that way. That we, too, have unrighteousness. That we, too, show ungodliness. And, and we do it manifestly over and over many times in our life that we still live under the need for the righteousness of God and the grace of God and the gospel of God to fill our hearts and fill our lives every day that we live because it's his work his power his expression in us that gives us the ability to show forth his righteousness in the world in which we live Paul says, I want you to understand something. God is showing his glory, and next week we'll see how he's revealed it in the, in the magnificent universe that he's created, how he's revealed it in, in, in the trees and the grass and the sun and the moon and, and everything that's around, and yet man has chosen to say, no, that's not what I want. That's not what I want to believe. That's not what I give. I want to give my life to. I want to give my life to myself. I want to be satisfied with my own selfishness. I want to be satisfied in my own idolatries. And, and Paul is saying that in, in that is where the issue shows itself in mankind and in people's lives every single day. Paul says, the wrath of God, the punishment of God, the dealing of God is being shown right now. We'll show how he unfolds that in, in, a, in a week or so when he shows how it's not so much by what he does, but what he doesn't do. It's not so much by his active involvement in that as just by his taking his hands off and saying, not now. 
I won't, I won't deal with it directly right now. But this idea of creation, this idea of God having made it known, plain, how he's, he's demonstrated that, and yet man still says, I want, to, I want to have an idol. I want to be my own God. I want to pursue my own self. I remember reading an article some years ago, back in the early 1900s, right about the time the, the whole Big Bang theory was coming out, and everybody was saying, it's this, that's the whole new understanding of the Big Bang. And the definition given by the by the scientists who talked about it, said he discovered it through this, this unbelievable telescope and satellite that they detected it through, said this is the birth pangs of the universe, and said, you know, what happened was that matter and energy collided together and formed matter. I still tried to figure out where the matter came from that collided, that formed matter, but, but that was another matter. But, but a, a writer in the, in the American Physical Society in London uh, wrote, in, uh, who is a member of that, wrote in the Guardian, the newspaper in London, he said, it's difficult to know what the appropriate reaction to such a mind-expanding discovery should be, except to get down on one's knees in total humility and give thanks to God, or Big Bang, or both, he's a secularist, for cunningly contriving to allow this infinitesimal part of the universe called earth, to be bestowed with something called air. Well, even though he was pretty much a secularist in his view, he did come to the point of saying there, there has to be some acknowledgement there that something bigger than us, mightier than us, is behind it. And it ought to cause us humility. And it ought to cause us gratefulness and giving thanks to God in that particular moment. And on the opposite end of the scale, I've heard doctors over and over say, you know, I, I'm, uh, one doctor wrote a few years ago in the Orlando paper, said, I am filled with the same awe and humility when I contemplate something of what goes on in a single cell as when I, when I go outside and contemplate the sky on a clear night. Something so small, so microscopic, is just as magnificent. I've heard Mark Huffman say, you know, the, the thing that just shows him the creative character of God is the human eye. The human eye just couldn't do that, uh, oh, oh, no matter how long you give it. But there's a, creative, there's a creative mind behind that. There's a creative being behind that. And, and Paul says, listen, you ought to just be able to look around it, at the skies and the stars. You ought to look around at the cells. You ought to look around at the eyeball. You ought to look around at all these things because all of those things point you to the one who created it all. And apart from him, and apart from seeing that, you are without excuse. He's made himself known. Now later he reveals himself in the scriptures and in the, in the word of the scriptures and the word of his son, Jesus, in the manifestation. But Paul wants it to be clear. He wants us all to understand clearly that all of this is given so that we stand without excuse. So someone can't stand one day before God and say, God, I, I, mm, wait a minute, I didn't, I didn't know. I didn't understand. I didn't know that. I say, yeah, you knew. But you suppressed that truth. You refused to acknowledge that truth because, you see, it's that first step. It's that I have an issue. I have a problem. 
that I can't deal with, that, that I see there must be someone who can give me away. It's that first step of acknowledgement that leads us to the next step of being able to say, who is he? And what has he done to demonstrate that? Who is he? And how has he manifest himself in a glorious, special revelation on the cross to show us not just our need, but his solution. And that's where Paul wants to go. Paul wants to spend his whole time in this, in this section of Romans to say, listen, yeah, it's bad. And this is bad news. And this is difficult. And this is hard to hear sometimes. But he always points back to I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes, to the Gentile that he's talking about here, and to the Jew that he's going to talk about, and to the moralizer he's going to talk about, and to all humankind, the gospel is the power of God to save all and any who believe. And the call of Paul is a call to the gospel. It's a call to Christ. And when we come to this passage and then we come to this table this morning and, and you, see the, you, you see the corresponding contrast that in our sin we had a need and in his death on the cross that we're reminded about in this table, he has provided a solution for all who believe. He said, my body has been given on a cross as a substitute. My, my blood has been spilled as the blood of the new covenant whereby you can know God and have relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. He said, this is the essence of the new covenant that you, puny little old you and me, can know almighty God and, and worship him. Know him intimately through his son, Jesus Christ. So we come to the table, and we come to the table to, to partake and to remember and to proclaim. Because the gospel is proclaimed in these elements. The gospel is shown in the bread when Jesus said, This is my body, which is given for you. Take and eat it. This, this is manifestly pointing toward the crucifixion, that horrible death he suffered in our place. And this, this juice is representative. It, it's my blood that is, that is poured out, that is spilled out to seal the new covenant. And so when you hold that in your hands, it's more than just a piece of bread and a cup of juice. It's a, it's a proclamation. That's why it's important that only believers participate. Because in holding that, you're saying, his body was given for me. I believe and I eat to remember that. And, and this blood is the blood of the covenant that I've entered into this new covenant relationship with God through Christ. And, and, and this blood seals that covenant. It's, it's illustrative of what is sealed. And I drink it. An unbeliever can't say that. An unbeliever can't proclaim that. But one who is in Christ can and indeed must. Because, you see, a believer in Christ is one who has recognized 
that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So this morning, to come to this table, I ask you to think about that. To think about what he has done through the cross. To think about all that he has overcome that Paul talks about in this passage from Romans. Think about what it means to know him. The power of his resurrection. To know him even in the fellowship of his sufferings. To know him. And to be known by him. The fellowship with him. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? And as our deacons who will serve come forward and prepare themselves. As we pray together, asking God to show us his glory and show us his truth, manifest himself to us, to help us see his grace and the gospel in these elements. And as you take that bread in a few minutes and you eat it, would you thank him for your salvation, thank him that that he gave himself for you. As you take that cup, thank him for spilling his blood that cleanses us of sin and declares us righteous in the new covenant. You continue to pray.